Well, I'm so glad to be with you today. I don't always get invited back. Um, But it is an honor to be here. My mom and her caregiver, Brooke, and my youngest daughter are also here. I I think I told you the last time I was here, I was raised Baptist. I was raised right. And I jumped ship and married a Methodist. And um, so this is my mom's first time ever hearing me preach in a Baptist pulpit so she can go back and tell her friends that we're complete apostates at this point and um, that she's heard her daughter preach in a Baptist pulpit. But um, I was excited for David to invite me to be here. Um, he did send a, a, a grid that I had to come up with a, the sermon title. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but sometimes the hardest part of the sermon is the title. And I said to Henry, okay, I got a sermon together, I just don't have a title yet. And uh, give me a minute. And so I managed to pull that together. I'm glad to be here with you. Let us pray before we begin our service. Holy and gracious God, you have given your word to us as an act of love so that we have a little insight into who you are and so that you have given us also an insight into who you would have us to be. I pray that you will take the words of this very, very familiar story and give it new meaning, and that we will be inspired to be the hands and feet of Jesus in a way that maybe we have never done it before. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So when you think of neighbors, who are some people that you think of, some famous neighbors? I am going to completely age myself here and say that one of the first names that comes to mind is Mrs. Kravitz um, from Bewitched. And you younger generation will not know who that is, but back in the 70s and 60s, there was a sitcom, not a sitcom, but it was a, a, it was a sitcom, and Samantha was a witch, and she married a regular old guy, and the next door neighbor was Mrs. Kravitz, and Mrs. Kravitz knew that something was not right over there at that house, and she kept seeing things that just weren't quite right, and every time she would bring her, was her husband Abner? She would bring him to the window and say, look at that, and then everything was fine. She could never really catch um, something going on, and nobody else could ever witness it. Um, I think of Mrs. Kravitz, and I also think of Dennis the Menace. I think of his next-door neighbors, Mr. and Mrs. Wilson, and Mrs. Wilson was this precious, sweet lady who was the grandmotherly sort. Mr. and Mrs. Wilson never had children, and so Mrs. Wilson was the huggy grandmother who, who made the cookies one day for Joey and Dennis, and Joey said, Dennis, what do you think we did to deserve these cookies? And Dennis said, I don't think, Miss, I don't think Mrs. Um, Wilson made these cookies for us because we're good. I think she made us these cookies because she's good. So that was Mrs. Wilson, but Mr. Wilson, God bless that man. <laughs> Dennis considered Mr. Wilson to be his best friend. And Mr. Wilson was just... You know, under the, under the word beleaguered in the dictionary, it says, see Mr. Wilson, because Dennis was always there underfoot and causing some kind of problem. But really, in the bottom of his heart, Mr. Wilson was 
um, touched that this little boy who just couldn't help himself to make messes um, considered him to be his best friend. And then I think of Wilson W. Wilson Jr., Ph.D., from Home Improvement. Do you remember him? Uh, Tim the Toolman Taylor. And Wilson, we never saw anything below the eyes on Wilson. He was the friendly neighbor who, you know, we would always see these conversations between Tim and Wilson in the backyard over the fence. He never came into the yard, but he always had um, great advice. He was a great problem solver, and he was just a kind and gracious person. And so I guess that kind of um, is an example of the quote someone has said, a good neighbor is a fellow who smiles at you over the back fence but doesn't climb over it. So that was Wilson. But really and truly, we use the term neighbor pretty readily, but what is a neighbor? How would we define a neighbor. I think it's one of those words we use so often that we really don't necessarily have a definition for. Is it someone who lives in my neighborhood? Is it someone who lives on the same street? Is it someone who lives in my town? How do we go about understanding a neighbor? And what's the difference between a good neighbor and a bad neighbor? Um, well, if we listen to State Farm, a good neighbor is there. I mean, like a good neighbor, State Farm's always there. They're there when you need them. A good neighbor is someone you can call on. My next door neighbors, the Horns, are, are just the nicest people, and they think we're the greatest neighbors ever because I make a pecan pie for them every year at Christmas. And Ellie watches their cat when they're out on vacation, and... Um, then about once a year, my dog goes over and uses their pristine, beautiful lawn as a potty. And they have to reevaluate, you know, whether we're good neighbors or not. Then we have to add the battery back to the collar and get him back in the yard. Um, most of my interactions with my neighbors, strangely enough, happen are more of a happenstance than intentional interactions. We're out in the yard. The neighbor across the street's working in their yard, or the neighbor down the street is walking their dog, and we end up interacting on happenstance most of the time. And um, and so, but to be a neighbor is to be someone that you can call on, somebody that you're friendly with, and somebody who is nearby. The story of the Good Samaritan is a story about neighbors. And it's also one of the most familiar stories in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, this story is such a familiar story that the term Good Samaritan is actually part of the lingo of the Western world. And I'll bet that there are people that use the expression Good Samaritan and they, they have no idea what a Samaritan is. They, we just refer to people that go out of their way to be nice to people or do something nice. You've got a flat tire on the side of the road. A good Samaritan stops and changes the tire for you. Um, they might not know what a good Samaritan is or where the word came from, but they just know at some point, somewhere, there was a good Samaritan, and we should try to be like the good Samaritan. 
For those of us who are used to reading the, the Bible, this we know the story. We are familiar with the story. And I'm going to tell you a little secret about preachers. Um, in some ways, it's actually harder to preach on a scripture passage that everybody is familiar with than on an unfamiliar passage. And the reason is because what can you really say about this scripture passage that hasn't been said before? What can I preach about today that is going to be brilliant and unique? And, um, you know, we really want to be able to give you an aha moment, but most of us have heard dozens of sermons on the, the Good Samaritan. Well, about three years ago, I was invited to preach a homecoming service, and um, I was to preach on the Good Samaritan. And so I was doing my due diligence and reading, you know, background history, commentaries, and doing my exegesis of the Scripture. That's a fancy word for just reading something and trying to pull the meaning out of it. But you can impress your friends at lunch. If you go to, if you go to lunch with the Methodists or the Presbyterians, you can say something about an exegesis of this scripture, and they'll think you're brilliant. But anyway, I was, doing, <laughs> I was doing my exegesis of this story, and I really got an aha moment. I thought, oh my gosh, no one has ever come up with this interpretation before. And I, I put my sermon together and preached at homecoming, and everybody said it was great. And so a couple of weeks later, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a pastor and said, oh my gosh, you won't believe this. I just preached on the, the Good Samaritan, and I came up with an interpretation that that's completely unique. Nobody's ever thought of it before. And I told him about it, and he said, hmm. I thought that was a pretty standard interpretation. <laughs> I went, that is not possible. No way. It is not possible because I don't think I've, I know I've never heard that before. I am singularly brilliant, and I came up with a 100% unique approach to this story. But I'm going to tell you, and I'm, I'm fibbing, I'm kidding about that, but I, I'm going to tell you that I've read over 20 different commentaries on this story, and not one single one of them has come to the same conclusion that I came to. And so I don't know if I'm completely off track or if I am brilliant. So you'll have to tell me after the sermon is over. Um, but let's turn our, uh, turn our attention to the story. Um, Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of a context. He just tells us that Jesus was somewhere teaching and a man who was, who was an expert in the law stood up and asked a question. Um, Jesus, um, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he's probably expecting Jesus to give him some far-out answer. Because by now, they have realized that Jesus doesn't really do or say the same things that a regular teacher of the law does. And um, Jesus doesn't just give him an answer. He does one of the most frustrating things, I have to say. It must have been frustrating to try to have a conversation with Jesus as much as I would have liked to have been able to do it. He never answered the question. He would ask you a question. In, does that make you crazy when you ask a question and somebody asks you a question back? You say, I ask first. 
Um, but anyway, he says, um, what do you see there? What does the law say about it? What do you see? And he gives the textbook answer. He gives the absolute textbook answer. He says that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus gave him a verbal pat on the back. He said, excellent, great, that's exactly right. Um, do this and you will live. This is the right answer. So what's the problem? You already knew the answer. And the guy, we don't really know what was behind this. Luke says he wanted to justify himself, and he pushes it a little further and says, but who is my, who is my neighbor? And I don't think he was trying to be adversarial here. I think he really wanted to know what the boundaries were, because there's something in us as humans that we really do want to know you know, if I go past this point, you know, beyond this point, there be dragons, okay? If you stay inside this parameter, things are good. But if you go beyond this boundary, we're in trouble. And so I think he really just really wanted to pick Jesus's brain and find out really and truly what was going on here. Well, once again, he didn't get a direct answer from the question. He got a story. And we know the story. There's a man on the road to Jericho, which some, some writers have said, this fellow must have been foolish because nobody travels the road to Jericho alone. For over two millennia, that road has been considered one of the most dangerous stretches of road in the Middle East. There's lots of twists and turns. The, the terrain is rough. It descends very deeply. And there's a lot of places where brigands and highwaymen can, can rob you or, or beat you up, which is exactly what happens to this fellow in the story. And now we have our other two characters that come into the story. We have the priest and the Levite. And um, neither of those guys, we know, stopped to help the fellow and one thing we need to know about them is that um, they were both in service to the temple. And here's, I'm sure that you've heard this before, but the, the tribe of Levi were given responsibility for the maintenance and the care of the temple. Some of the Levites along the line of Aaron were the priests. Priests and Levites both served in the temple, but all, all priests were Levites, but all Levites were not priests. And so what happened was you, there were 24 families that the, it was divided among, and so you got about two weeks of service in the temple. It's not like you were in the temple year-round. You lived in your hometown, and then you would come into Jerusalem, and you would serve, do a week of service in the temple, and you would go back home, and then you would come back again and do another week of service in the temple. And so both of these fellows probably were thinking, um, you know what, if, and the other thing was that you, 
you would they would draw lots to see who actually got to go inside to light the candle the lampstand inside the um, holy place and there were certain things that if you weren't there you weren't going to be able to participate or if you were encountered blood or if you um, touched a dead body you wouldn't be able to perform the services that you were supposed to perform in the temple and so these guys are probably thinking I can't I can't help this fellow. I'm really sorry. He might be dead. If I touched a dead person, I won't be able to perform my service in the temple. And so they get a bad rap, but you have to take into consideration what also might have been in their minds. The sad thing is that they considered their service to God in the temple paramount over their service to other human beings. Jesus is making a point to this fellow that he's choosing two characters that should be two of the most trustworthy people for for anybody that was a Jew, a priest or a Levite. He's choosing them in the story intentionally to say they took they um, that they lost the opportunity to really serve God by stopping for someone who was in need in their desire to get to the temple and, and serve God. They stepped over the opportunity to love someone in their desire to get there to love God. Now we see the Samaritan comes along, and he is a symbolic character as well. He symbolizes um, just really the dregs of society. You all probably know the history of the Samaritans in 722 BC when Assyria um, attacked the northern kingdom and dispersed the northern tribes. Many of the people that were left there intermarried with the pagans as they came in. And Um, The southern kingdom wasn't destroyed until 487 B.C., and so um, they they were left intact, and they were taken into captivity into um, into Babylon. And when they came back from Babylon and were trying to establish the second temple, the Samaritans came and, and, and... slaughtered pigs and threw the blood in the temple area. And so there was a lot, there were, there were centuries of enmity between the Samaritans and the Jews. And the Jews would go around Samaria to get from Judah to Galilee, and they didn't want anything to do with one another. So he was at, at best a half-breed. At worst, he was sort of a Heinz 57 because um, the Jews had tried to stay very pure, and the Samaritans were just mixed. And so that was a big no-no. And so he represented all of the things that a good Jewish person would detest. And so Jesus is having a little fun here. He's using a little bit of hyperbole with all of his um, characters. And what do we learn here? What is Jesus really telling us, instead of just giving a flat, straight-out answer, what's he telling us? He's telling us, first of all, that there's never a good time for something to go wrong. Okay, if you're waiting for a good time for something to go wrong, forget it. Seems like every time at our house 
that we have ever had, like a baby bird or a chipmunk, that, you know, baby bird's falling out of the nest and, and it needs to get taken to the wildlife sanctuary or the cat gets a hold of a chipmunk. I'm in the middle of something that I really do not want to stop. You know, today's not the day. Well, but we end up bundling up the little creature and getting them to the wildlife sanctuary or the vet or whatever. And that's how it happens, isn't it? Things happen at the worst possible time. So there's never a good time for something to go wrong. The second thing I think Jesus is expressing here is that love involves sacrifice. The extent to which I love you is the extent to which I'm willing to be inconvenienced for you. Love is not love if it is not willing to be inconvenienced for another. And who knows what that Samaritan had going on that day. Maybe he had a very important business meeting. We don't know. But he was willing to be um, inconvenienced because he saw the humanity in the person who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead. The priest and the Levite got it wrong because they mistook duty to God in the temple as more important than loving the other person literally at their feet in the road. They would have loved God better by missing out on their service in the temple and saving the life of a stranger. The Samaritan got it right because he understood that there was nothing he had to do that day that was more important than saving the person on the road. Martin Luther King Jr. said of this parable, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to, ha- if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? The, but the good Samaritan reversed the question, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Some have interpreted this story as an allegory or a metaphor. The wounded man is all of us. We're beaten by the robbers of sin and misfortune. The priest and the Levite represent apathy of the world around us and the suffering of, and, and the suffering of another. And along comes Jesus, the good Samaritan, the true Samaritan, to bind our wounds, to help us heal, and to care for us and redeem our brokenness. I love that interpretation. I think that's a great one because it hits at the heart of the gospel. But here's another interpretation, my brilliant one, that I want to offer to you today. Jesus answered the question, who is my neighbor, by completely turning everything upside down. I don't know if any of you have ever read Clarence Jordan's um, Cotton Patch Gospel, but in the um, in the play, the the stage version um, of the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, "Turn it around, turn it around, surprise them a little, start shifting the ground to get right side up, turn upside down. Now is the time to turn it around." And that's exactly what he did here. He took the question, "Who is my neighbor?" and turned it around to say, that's the wrong question. The question I should be asking is, 
To whom am I a neighbor? Not who can be my neighbor, the person who can do something, the good neighbor who's always there. To whom can I be the neighbor? Pope Benedict the Fourteenth once said, or the 16th said, the relevance of this parable today is evident. Aren't we surrounded by people who have been robbed and battered? The victims of drugs, of human trafficking, of sex tourism, inwardly devastated people who sit empty in the midst of material abundance. All of this All this is of concern to us. It calls us to have the eye and the heart of a neighbor and to have the courage to love our neighbor. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, has been often quoted as saying, the world is my parish. I love that. That's a great, all the world is my parish. Well, folks, the world is our neighborhood. And we should look around. Christ is inviting us to look around and see each and every person we meet as a neighbor. I've always thought one of the loveliest things about my oldest daughter, Annabelle, from the time she was a tiny little thing, was every person she met was a potential friend. Every person. She, she just engaged them as a potential friend. Wouldn't we be a beautiful extension of the hands and feet of Jesus if we met every person that we encountered and saw them as a potential neighbor? Pray with me. Holy God, you have called us to be the body of Christ in the world. And you have called us to be your hands and feet. Help us to see the world as our neighbor. Help us to see the need. Help us to be willing to be inconvenienced to share your love. In Jesus' name, amen.